Welcome to Rooster Radio. I'm Andrew Montessi with James Begley. This is our second episode live from South Start. South Start is a conference that showcases entrepreneurship and innovation in South Australia with great speakers, expos and workshops. James was MC for the day, so I took the reins for this panel discussion about creating the demand in online marketplaces. On the panel was Dan Draper, CTO at Expert360, the marketplace that connects businesses to top freelance professionals. David Trumbull, co-founder at Car Next Door, Australia's largest car sharing network. And Edward Hartley, co-founder of Blue Thumb, Australia's largest online art marketplace. I also shared a little bit about Pickstar, the platform to book sports stars. We talk about building the marketplace ecosystem, the drivers of growth, the importance of tech and automation, funding, quality control and maintaining credibility, and more. There were a few microphone issues early on, so bear with us. Let's jump into the chat now. To introduce the panel, we have Dan Draper from Expert360. We have David Trumbull, the co-founder and CTO at Car Next Door. And we have Edward Hartley from Blue Thumb. To moderate the panel discussion, Andrew Montessi from Pickstar and Rooster Radio will kick us off. Andrew, over to you. Thanks very much, Begs. Well, um, to kick things off, I guess marketplaces are a challenging beast for a number of reasons, uh, but particularly when it comes to creating the demand from both sides. Uh, from a Pickstar perspective, we have hundreds of athletes who are available on the system, but there's no point if there's uh, not the paid opportunities from brands, corporates, schools and clubs to be able to uh, keep engagement high amongst the athletes. So to kick things off, um, we've got three guys who know these issues very well. Um, we might just start off by um, each of you just giving us a little snapshot to describe both sides of your marketplace and maybe kick off with you, Dan. Sure, yeah. Um, thanks for having me. So I'm, I'm the CTO at Expert360. Uh, I'm actually relatively new to the business, so I've been fortunate enough joining the business at a time in the last 12 months where there is kind of that, that two-sided marketplace already established. So getting it from the inception is, is maybe another part of the conversation, but how to grow it and sustain it is, is where I'm uh, seeing my, my benefit. So Expert360 is it's a marketplace for consultants to sell their services to uh, companies like Commonwealth Bank, BHP, NBN Co, and so forth, and other smaller uh, organizations that need what they call contingent labor. So as an example, Commonwealth Bank spends $200 million a year, roughly, on what they call their contingent labour force. That's all contractors that are coming in for, for short periods of time. And it's in an industry which is has been just totally ripe for disruption. They're, they're dealing with old companies that are still doing timesheets via fax and all this mm. kind of stuff. So for us, it's not just about the marketplace and finding those connections, but it's also about adding additional services mm. on top of that. Okay. Yeah, sure. So what we do at CarNextDoor is we connect um, regular car owners, so most people who don't use their car much, use it a bit, um, but like the convenience of, um, that comes with car ownership. Uh, and we uh, join them up with uh, people who need to use a car um, occasionally or, or a bit more often or maybe a different type of car and um, don't necessarily want the, the cost and the burden of car ownership. So um, we've been going for about five years and now we've got coming up to 1,100 cars on the platform, mostly in the eastern states. Uh, about 40,000 signed up members to borrow those cars and we're doing about 1,000 bookings a week. So Awesome. Four from one. Wow. That's, That's exciting. Ed? 
Yeah, so Blue Thumb is an online art marketplace. Uh, we've got about 6,000 Australian artists around the country and they sell their artwork directly to art lovers around the country. Um, so originally we were founded to uh, help emerging artists build a sustainable career and at the same time uh, everyday, um, let everyday Australians access original and affordable art. Yeah, so we're also now working to expand our platform to host um, Indigenous art communities and art centres. Uh, there's about 13,000 uh, Aboriginal artists in remote areas that we're onboarding into and press onboarding to Blue Thumb. And then um, our next step is to sell their artwork overseas. What a stunning. Did anyone hear that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Blue Thumb is an online art marketplace. Uh, we have about 6,000 independent artists and we sell our artwork directly to collectors around the country. Um, it's basically a dropship model, um, so um, you can browse for artwork and buy it directly from the artist. It comes straight from their studio, studio to your home. Um, we're in the process now of we've built the technology to host art galleries and um, indigenous art centres so that we can onboard, um, I guess, commercial participants and uh, take it to the next level, which is to export Australian art um, to global collectors. Yeah, so I guess essentially our mission is no white walls. <laughs> Interested in fostering the ecosystem between both sides and how that's evolved for you guys, but maybe starting off with you, Dave, how has the ecosystem evolved and how, what have you learned about kind of keeping both sides active and engaged? Oh, it's, a, it's the, the biggest challenge in, in marketplace businesses. It's a, uh, they're tough, basically. You've got to balance the two sides. So when we started out, we started... Um, we've kept ourselves very tight geographically because, um, you know, in our, our mind, you do need a certain density, in particular with cars. It's very location-specific. So we started with uh, 20 cars in Bondi and, and went live and then... Um, Got more more borrowers on, and and been we did about a twelve month pilot in the in Sydney's eastern suburbs, and then um, grew out from there. So I think at, at any point in time, you've got to be always looking at at where the balance is, and and where you need to put resources, because as a startup, those resources are, are, are limited, and you can't do everything for everyone. And if if it gets out of whack, then people um, get they don't have the utilisation or the cars aren't there and they, they go away and often you've got one shot at a customer. So, Dan, what's the balance like for Expert 360? Uh, it's, it's, it's similar. It's a constant challenge to try to balance that. Um, so we have uh, roughly just over 20,000 consultants on our, on our platform now and maybe five or 6,000 companies. Um, but still most of our business comes from, from um, maybe a dozen or two big companies. So we have some large enterprises. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what's interesting for us is always trying to determine whether we are supply or demand constrained. And at the moment, we're probably uh, demand constrained mm. and that we have to continue to grow uh, the clients that are you know, acquiring services from consultants. But it gets more complex than that because in our industry or our space, there's a huge number of different services that people can offer. So being able to understand um, you know, which particular services are in demand, what sort of price points people are willing to pay, all that kind of stuff, it actually becomes quite complicated. Mm. So it's almost like a, we're doing a, starting to do a little bit of work with big data and you know, very high-speed analytics and some artificial intelligence and so forth mm. to help us understand that because so far we've had um, 
so far we've had uh, you know a team of people or in the past we've had a team of people that literally try to understand every consultant in the database mm. but once you're up past a few hundred consultants, it becomes impossible for anyone to understand it all. So at that mm. point, that's where the technology really needs to take over. Mm, so that's, that's where we're at now. Ed, what about, what about growth? Over your journey, where's growth come from and, and, and what have you learned? Yeah, um, look, I'd say with any business um, or the vast majority, it's acquiring customers. It's the, the people actually spending the money are the hardest and the most important part of it. Um, and we certainly found on the, on the supply side of the artists, it was there naturally and they came to us um, and we had very good referrals. Um, the minute an artist sells a painting, it's a moment of elation and they tell their friends who are usually artists and they join on. So you ha we have had to focus um, very much on the buyer side and particularly in the first few years when bootstrap, the first four years and you know, resources were constrained. So usually what we found is it comes down to maybe two or three channels that you've got to focus on and they're working well. Um, SEO is always important. Um, we've, um, th once we've had a marketing budget, we've been able to use um, AdWords and um, <clears throat> sort of social ads, particularly Facebook has become very effective for us. And then also your own um, email list. So for us, those are the three channels and it changes over time. Um, I would say right now, Facebook has become incredibly important. So that's, um, yeah, there's a lot of focus going on that. One issue we've had with Pickstar is, I guess, market development in that people not understanding the possibilities about what can be done with athletes and that this system is available and that it's actually easy. How have you seen the market development, maybe starting with you, Dave? Yeah, I think when we started in uh, 2012, when we started in the end of 2012, the, the concept was, was very novel. Um, a good chunk of people would say, oh, um, why would anyone ever let anyone drive their car? It's ridiculous. But um, I think in the last um, four or five years, the, the, the publicity around the sharing economy, um, companies like Airbnb and Uber, and then and more closely to, to um, our, our business is something like GoGet, is really all those things coming together. It, it changes the mindset of people and, and they think, well, actually, I'm not too precious about my car, so I'm prepared to do it. So... That's kind of getting them across the idea, but then getting, um, getting across that it's actually is better than the current way. Um, and you, to do that, you've got to get them to try it. And uh, it's still a bit of a, a mental hurdle to, to break from the current patterns, but, um, but I think we're getting there, yeah. What about uh, funding? Uh, it's always a topic of debate, but particularly with marketplaces, it just seems that... Um, investment is required to really scale the platform. How has that evolved for, for you guys? And maybe starting with you, Ed, given that you mentioned that you, you bootstrapped early on, can you tell us about that period? Yeah, sure, we were bootstrapped for about four years. Um, I mean, because when we began, we just asked a simple question, can you sell art online? And everyone in the industry said no. So we, were, <laughs> we wanted to start small and just test that. And it turned out you could. Um, so we really chipped away at it and we kind of, I guess it was actually three and a half years before I went, look, this is kind of growing in spite of us. No one is full-time of, full, of the founders. You know, I quit my work and why am I running someone else's company? Jumped in and we went out seeking funding and we got lucky and got great investors very quickly. Um, and that really helped. You know, we could actually invest in the product, invest in the technology and had a marketing budget. So I definitely think if you're going to win, if you want to be the biggest and best, you're going to need funding unless you're right in the upper echelon and you've nailed it, um, which is very, very hard. 
Yeah, I, was, I agree entirely with the, the concept of needing funding for a marketplace or a market network. Um, I mean, for us, we, we have a sales team, we have an internal support team. Now, one view of the business, and this is not the view we take, but one view of the business might be that you could have a whole bunch of people finding consultants and then selling their services to our clients. Then essentially we're just a recruitment firm, which is in many ways the antithesis of what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to build a technology product. The other, the other side of that, that problem is that if you focus on transactions, as in placing people and getting them to work, getting consultants to work with your clients, uh, then eventually you run the risk of them disintermediating. Dis, dis so in other words, we've got a relationship with each other, we're going to go directly now. So what are, the, what are the reasons that clients or consultants would want to continue to use our platform? And that's when we start to talk about software as a service offerings, uh, various different product features, um, social elements to it, gamification, those kinds of things that require a lot of funding to build out products to keep them sticky and to keep people engaged on the platform rather than going directly. Yeah, so we were bootstrapped as well for the first probably um, 12 to 18 months, but bootstrapped with like 300 grand of um, not, not, not my money, but uh, my partner's money. So we just couldn't have done it without that that initial money, money, and, and I, th I think for a marketplace, getting that money is tough because everyone knows marketplace businesses are, are, are difficult to, to succeed. So um, if you can get away without selling a big chunk of your company real cheap at the start, then um, try and do that. But, I mean, for us, we were putting um, technology in cars, you know, installing. Uh, it cost us about $1,000 to put a car on and take it off. So... And you need a, a certain volume to, to seed the marketplace. So you quickly run out of um, money if you, don't, if you don't have it. That's, that's without even you know, acquiring customers. Mm. Yeah. Big part of the cost is obviously tech. Um, interested in, to learn from you guys um, the evolution of your platforms. And I think of Pickstar, we've got 65, something like 65 steps between when a person submits an opportunity to book an athlete through to actually getting an athlete somewhere. And obviously, the goal for us is to automate as many of those steps as possible. How, how has the, the tech side evolved for you guys? Um, how much of, of the process is automated? And then also thinking about the, um, the importance of customer service and being hands-on with clients as well. Maybe starting with you, Dave. Yeah, sure. So I think you've got to, you've got to start very manual because um, particularly if it's a novel marketplace, you don't know how it operates best. No one knows how it operates best. So you've got to um, speak to every single customer and work out what their issues are and evolve the platform the way you, way you operate the platform. So you can't automate what you don't know yet. So there's that. And then the next stage is to um, systemise your, your manual process so become very efficient and, and lean processes, still quite manual, uh, but it's repetitive. You don't have to make it up every time. And then it's only then when you look, at, you look at that and you look at all your processes and you work out which ones are giving you trouble, uh, which ones are taking the most time, which ones are causing the most errors, and you, and you pick them off and you automate them. But you can't scale without the automation. We, we do 1,000 bookings a week, and if we were still doing what we did on day one, um, we'd have a lot of trouble. You just can't resource that. So, um, again, it's the balance of where you put your resources, those finite resources, is it... Um, staffing the people to, to do this interaction or is it hiring developers and, or is it both? It's, um, but 
to, to, to get something like this working properly in all these, um, you can't be doing this stuff manually on scale. Yeah, I would, I would second that entirely. It's certainly automation is a really big part of our business and we're becoming more and more automated all the time. Uh, one, of my, um, one of my mentors, who's a very senior person at Atlassian, says that you should always try to avoid BAU, that's business as usual stuff, as much as possible. So anything that can be automated, you should try and automate in order to scale. But the other thing for us is that, and no doubt this is the same for all of us actually, but the user is the most important thing. The, the most important thing about your business is making sure you understand your users and be able to adapt to learnings from these users, test concepts, test things very quickly and as cost-effectively as possible. And so that means you have to have ways to be able to prototype, get things in front of users, get feedback, and then only kind of build out concrete, hardcore implementations once you're satisfied that that's actually going to solve a product need or user need. So that's a really big part of our technology strategy. Yeah, I mean, we began with a very, very small budget um, and just a simple but elegant website. And I guess we figured out that the if we were working full-time and there was no one employed, then we had to automate as much as possible. And that what we wanted to do was distill the buying decision down to, do I like this piece of art enough to pay that much money? And if the answer is yes, they shouldn't have to do anything else. So it's just click buy, put in your address. Um, so pretty much the only thing we did was um, book freight. So we would make sure that painting, we, we covered the cost of freight and it just turned up on the doorstep. Um, you know, it's certainly grown from there, but just trying to cut out that human interaction where possible and, um, yeah, just, just keep it kind of simple. How do you, I guess, offset that with uh, the need to be personal, get feedback and perhaps deal with some super custom requests that an individual might have? Yeah, we definitely have that, and now we do quite a lot of commission paintings as well, and that's a lot more um, hands-on. <clears throat> so we just have to look at, you know, the time and the cost and effort. Um, but they tend to be, commissions for us tend to be high-value artworks, so that's okay. Um, and people do, we generally get very good feedback from our service. We just kind of did what we did naturally without really saying we need to be the best in customer service. We just answered questions and tried to help people get the art they want, and it turned out we were getting good, a good NPS score, a good net promoter score, a good feedback. Um, so we found that kind of evolved naturally, but really it's the technology you've got to focus on to get that good service and, and the, the features you build. You mentioned automation, but what about building for growth? So um, creating features that are going to be sticky and, and encourage people to share your service. What's been your thinking around that? I mean, it's always a balancing act. Um, I think it depends on the stage that you're at with your business. I mean, at Expert360, we're very much in the, the growth phase. So sometimes you're making uh, some sacrifices in some areas in order to, to improve your growth prospects. But the way that we're, we're looking at it is a very long-term play. So we want to we want to build out those those product feature sets in order to, to keep people sticky. Because for us, repeat repeat rates are probably the most important thing. It's It's actually quite easy for us to get people on board and do a transaction. But to make them repeat and do that again and again and again is a whole different kettle of fish. So, so that's, I mean, for us, that's where we're investing right now. I think every business is going to have a different kind of conversation about that, depending on where they're at in their growth. Uh, same here, really. It's, um, it's all about compromise and, and doing things at the right time. And probably only now we're, you know, four or five in, years in that our platform's probably mature enough to start doing these features we've wanted to do for since day one. 
Um, you've got to get the you've got to get the fundamental fundamentals there first. And we've a number of times had to consciously scale back our growth, our marketing efforts, and, and things because the, the platform needed to catch up, um, uh, which isn't ideal. But you know, if you if you don't have the fundamentals in place and you do get that growth, then um, it can fall in a heap and people get upset and they leave, and that's not what you want either. So, can you give us some insight into the business model for your platforms? Um, I don't know if you can share kind of average transactions and how you make your money and maybe how that has evolved over the years. Yeah, we just charge a straight commission and it's not changed since we began. Um, I think um, it's, it's less than a gallery, but, um, you know, it's still a, a reasonable commission and, and we need it. It was the only money we had to, you know, build our technology and, and market. Um, and I figure if you can do that when you're bootstrapped and prove that product market fit, you've actually you've, you've got the foundations right. Um, so our, our, middle, our model is very simple, you know, just pure commission. We are just now looking at, because we've got this huge um, network of artists, we're looking at selling art supplies into them at a discounted rate so they can buy direct from manufacturers um, because essentially they've been asking for it. Um, we had to start making boxes to improve the, the quality and the user experience at the end when the artwork arrives, so it's, that's a bit of a natural evolution. Yeah, I think our payment model is probably no different to a lot of a lot of other networks like this. We, we, we take a percentage of every transaction that goes through. The difference with Expo 360 is that sometimes our transactions will go for long periods of time, so we get a little bit of a long tail with a lot of our um, a lot of our uh, clients. Um, where we're starting to go now, though, is not just the ability to charge a percentage of the transaction that goes through, but we're offering software as a service options as well, and possibly with subscription fees to to sort of offset. Um, you know, different higher subscription means lower platform fee and so forth. So. I think for us it is a little bit more complex than that. So we'll, we'll charge the owner $60 a month to have their car on the platform, but uh, we actually make a loss on that. It, that covers comprehensive insurance, roadside assistance, fuel cards, toll, GPS tracking, all this sort of stuff. So we definitely um, subsidise that aspect. So on the, on the transaction side, we take a, a cut of the, the time and the distance as a separate per kilometre charge. Um, there also, there's also a booking fee and the opportunity to reduce your excess. So, um, and some of these things can get reduced automatically with a monthly fee. So it's it's a bit more complex. Yeah. It was much more complex, and we put a lot of work into. We used, the owner used to be able to choose different plans, and so that's there's one plan now for the owners. And the um, the borrowers used to have three choices. Now they've got two because it's, it is complex, and we we made it too complex to start with. Mm. Okay. Credibility is obviously key to a marketplace. If, if things go wrong, people are going to turn away from the platform pretty quickly. What's the vetting process for you guys? How do you ensure that, that credibility stays, stays at its peak? Uh, yeah, I'll kick off. I mean, so we, we let people borrow someone else's car without them actually meeting and, and exchanging keys. So it's someone they've never met before uh, in most cases. So their understanding on us is... A, to ensure that kind of a minimum standard of person is, is driving the car, but then on the other side, we've got to, we're effectively the, the face of the quality of control of the car itself. Um, so it's difficult um, because you can't control everything and when, when real people are involved. Um, so we put a lot of work into the, the onboarding process, the sign-up process to make sure that um, we're not too restrictive, so we, we do get the, the volumes in, but... Um, um, put all the work into things like fraud protection and um, we've now 
um, deployed a, a two-way review system so you can you can rate the car and rate the driver. So the, the marketplace self-selects a bit there and um, and we then for also get more more data around things like, oh, that car's repeatedly messy or or uh, doesn't match the description, in which case we can we can follow that up more proactively, yeah. I mean, this is really the core of our business. Um, when you're placing people in roles, whether they're, I mean, in our case, they're, they're part-time roles or, or contract roles, but in any role, really, the quality of that relationship, the quality of the person working in that role is incredibly important. And if it goes badly, uh, particularly on several occasions, then that is very damaging to your brand. So we're extremely sensitive about it. We have a, a human vetting team for every new consultant that comes in our system. Um, and uh, we have a, um, a growing set of artificial intelligence technologies that are helping to support that. Um, and we have a bunch of stuff. We look at what, what, at what the consultants have and what they want, so their, their, I guess, digital CV and their work preferences, and then we also look at the same sort of stuff for, cl for clients. And what we realise is that those two things aren't actually necessarily bidirectional. Um, clients sometimes want what consultants aren't prepared to offer and vice versa. Um, and so our artificial intelligence sits there, but we, uh, we do what we call supervised AI. So whenever the, the machine makes a suggestion, it's always reviewed by a human because this is such a human subjective um, you know, approach. Yeah, so I guess for us, we have now 6,000 artists and maybe 50,000 original artworks on site. So when someone um, arrives, the first thing it has to look is, is brilliant on the homepage, and we have to be quite selective um, and just curate that carefully. Um, <clears throat> and then from there, we need to, um, I guess, accommodate a range of different artists, from hobby artists through to people who are trying to win the Archibald Prize. Um, and so we, have a, we use a mixture of human curation, so every painting is reviewed. We have an in-house curator who will just scan all the uploads in the morning and mark them high quality or not. And if they're high quality, they start coming through our feeds and they're a lot more visible. Um, so that we try and direct people to the artists we know who are proven, that kind of have a product market fit. And it does tend to channel down towards, say, the top 100 artists. Really, they've really they're the ones that have been able to step out from, um, I guess, an emerging artist to, this is my full-time profession now. I'm earning enough through Blue Thumb that this is my career. And that's where we're trying to get them to and find those artists. But at the same time, you know, we, ha we need to um, engage with the re retirees who are doing a little bit of painting on the side. And often they're very good. Um, and to make sure the quality is there, you need to give them good tools and make it really easy for them to photograph that artwork and get it on. Because that's probably the most important thing, is the quality of the photograph you take of that painting, because that's really the main thing they've got to go on, plus a little bit of a description. Um, and from there, we're quite lucky because um, artwork actually does look better in the flesh rather than online, so when it arrives, people are happy. It almost always exceeds expectations, and that's something that um, we were quite fortunate in the way that happened. As we begin to wind up, I'm interested from each of you, what's the most memorable deal or transaction that has gone through your marketplace? Well, uh, one that struck out was, um, it was probably more than a year ago when we were a fair bit smaller. Um, one user, it was the first time she's on heard of Blue Thumb, downloaded the app and checked out with about $16,000 worth of art and I thought, that's brilliant. Hardly anyone's using our app for a start. <laughs> and secondly, that's worth more than my car. So, you know, to buy that sight unseen, I was quite impressed. Um, and it gave me a lot of confidence that, you know, we can expand this to the full spectrum of art and, you know, kind of global prices and, you know, valuable works. Oh, I, th I think you, you always remember the first one. It was for us, 
Uh, Christmas Eve 2012, we'd just launched with 20 cars, didn't have any borrowers yet, so we'd, we'd gotten a bunch of cars signed up and opened the doors to borrowers. Um, and the, car, the owners booked their own car to, to block it out. Um, and all of a sudden we got one of the owners booking a different car and we was like, oh, he's made a mistake, call him up, did you mean to do that? Like, yes, he did. Um, he, he had a small car, needed to pick up five people from the airport or four people from the airport, so borrowed his neighbour's SUV out of the car and I was, I was camping because I was like, you know, launched, but it's going to be a couple of weeks, so I'll go away. Um, so I'm sitting there at campsite tethering on my phone and just watching it like a hawk. It was, um, it was like the realisation that, of, you know, a year's blood, sweat and tears to get to that point, people are actually going to use it and pay money for it, so it's exciting. So I wasn't. I actually wasn't a part of the business when they did their first transaction. So the founders, uh, Bridget and Emily, were around back then. Um, but for me, I think the the transaction that's been most memorable since I've been a part of the business was was actually signing Commonwealth Bank. So for a, for a small city-based startup to sign a, a big enterprise like Commonwealth Bank was a really big deal for us. And it took months because they have this master services agreement, and you know nothing with these kinds of legal contracts is fast, so when we got that signed, it was just such a great experience. For Pickstar, we had an interesting one. We had a local company here in Adelaide, Silk Laser Clinics, put a really open brief into our system saying, hey, is there any athletes out there who want to get a tattoo removed? And um, sure enough, we had Kane Corns, a media personality, very high-profile premiership player, said, yeah, actually, I want to get my premiership tattoo removed. So, oh, okay, it's... Unusual. It ended up becoming big news. It was, um, you know, in the top top few uh, posts on Adelaide Now, and uh, ended up being a great PR coup and was a great demonstration of what a, a marketplace can do, particularly when athletes can apply for opportunities and you get this great synergy and fit. So thanks very much, guys, for your time. Um, really appreciate sharing your stories and the good and the, the tricky bits as well. Marketplaces are pretty bloody tough. Um, so thanks very much, and uh, thank you all for listening. We'll um, have this chat up on Rooster Radio in the next couple of days, along with a few other bits and pieces. Back to you, Begs. Thanks for listening to Rooster Radio, where we talk to interesting people doing amazing things. This interview was recorded live from South Start 2017. Don't miss out on this conference next year. Check out southstart.co for more info. Sign up to our mailing list and listen to more Rooster Radio episodes at roosterradio.biz. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on iTunes.